Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass were good friends from the mid-19th century to the late 19th century and were active leaders in the fight for the rights of women and blacks throughout their lives. From time to time, they got together to visit and talk about America as they knew it. In this archive edition of Radio Curious, I met with Chautauqua scholars Sally Roche Wagner and Charles Pace, who portrayed Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass. And I asked them each to tell us what it was like to be an American during their lifetime. The experience of the American man, white, was very different than the experience of a white woman. And both of the, our experiences were very different from the experience of Negro men and women. To be an American under conditions of oppression is to be whatever class you're part of. I couldn't go to college, neither could any Negro man or woman when I was a young girl. Uh, white men alone could. What did it mean to be an American? If you were a white male, it meant that you could get professional education. If you were anyone else, it meant you couldn't. And it meant that you could get a divorce. Well, there, until we began to agitate for divorce reform, divorce was not possible legally for any group. But, of course, it was the practice of men who had sufficient money to place their wives in insane asylums on their word and the word of their physician alone that this woman was insane. And it was not an uncommon method of divorce used by men of property and standing. I want to come back to that, but Frederick, from your point of view, what did it mean to be an American in your lifetime? Well, during the early years of my lifetime, it certainly meant to be an American was to be human. And slaves were not considered human in the same sense that whites were considered human. We were considered and were property. We were chattel. Uh, Judge Tandy said in the Dred Scott decision, the black man has no right the white man is bound to respect. And that meant, oh, I remember seeing hearing about uh, an overseer on a Lord plantation by the name of, of uh, his name escapes me now, but that was a slave named Dimby. And Dimby uh, had refused to act as an animal, and the overseer told him to do something, and he ran in the middle of a lake. And the overseer said, I'll give you three to come out. He had a rifle. He said, if you don't come out, he said, I'll shoot you. He counted one. All the slaves were looking, observing the scene. Dimby held his ground. He counted two, he held his ground, he counted three, and without the slightest bit of, uh, of hesitancy, he put the gun up to his face, he cocked it, he shot him, and Dimby's brains were spread throughout the lake. And nothing happened to him as a result of this. No black could testify in any court of law against a white. So there was nothing that could be done or even proven that he had killed anyone since no blacks could even testify. So first of all, to be an American meant to be human. And we essentially were ridden out of the human race. I would say that would be the major distinction. 
did you see um, the distinctions uh, that Elizabeth describes between men and women to the extent that she is describing them? Oh, certainly. Uh, I saw it. I was not as aware of it, of course, until I met Elizabeth. And she, being as logical as, as in her young womanhood as she is now, uh, convinced me that uh, women should have every right that man should have and that no argument that I could give her to refute that, such as a sentiment, such as custom, such as a woman's delicate condition, uh, was to any avail. And she immediately showed me the error of my ways. So I saw it, of course, but I didn't really reflect upon it until my meeting with Elizabeth. But certainly thinking back over that experience mm -hmm. now, it was quite apparent. During your lifetimes, in, in the early to the latter part of the 19th century, how did you see the American democracy evolve? Well, I saw America go from a slave society to a society that was not, that was not legally slavery. I saw a great period of flowering of democracy during the era of Reconstruction. I saw America go backward with the Supreme Court decision of the overthrowing the Civil Rights Act. I saw it disenfranchise hundreds of thousands of men who had been enfranchised after 1870. And uh, I saw black people being in worse shape uh, in the 1890s than they had been in slavery. Uh, at least as slaves, you were property, you were owned by whites, and whites had a vested interest, southern whites, had a vested interest in your livelihood. But once you became free, and they did not want to pay people who they once could have worked for free, then the whole image of blacks were changed, particularly black men. We went from overgrown children to beasts. And American government, legislative branch, judicial branch, executive branch, took no responsibility toward the protection of black life and black property in the South. So I saw it like a, a wavy curve. I'm not a mathematician, I think. They talk about a sign curve mm -hmm. up and down mm -hmm. uh, of American democracy. And we are certainly on the down aspect of that, of that curve now. Elizabeth, how did you see that change during your lifetime? Small steps of progress for women. When I was a girl, there was not a college or university open to me. My daughters both have graduated from college, one of them with a master's degree. I helped open those doors. Uh, we have made small inroads into legal rights for women. We have Married Women Property Acts now in a number of states. When I was a young girl, the young men who were studying in my father's law office would bedevil me constantly with the reminder that once I married, even the clothes on my back would no longer be mine. And they would pretend that they would marry me in order to take my jewelry. Uh, but well, now... For you, love prevailed. You chose to be married. I chose. And Henry chose not to take the clothing off my back as his own. Men could renounce the power that was given to them legally, but the legal system gave every man the power of tyranny. We slowly pushed those laws back, so we began to be able to control our property, and today in many states we have that right. 
We also have the right to our own wages, some rights to our children, all rights we didn't have when I was a girl. In some cases, there is municipal suffrage, there is school suffrage in some states, there are a few states and territories that have given women the right to vote, but very small steps. Precedent, however, does make a difference in that though blacks now have their rights taken from them, we did go through a period of time where blacks did exercise some control. And so it can never be denied because the mm -hmm. historical record is there. And so the future can always refer back to what was was when black men had power in the South. And so it can never be argued that blacks cannot control their own destiny, though we do not now. But we do have the historical record to say that at one time we did. That, I think, is uh, the forward-looking aspect of it. You both come from such different backgrounds and from such different societies. Uh, how is it that you came together as intellectual activists and social and political activists in your lives? The moment brought us together, I suppose. I first heard Frederick Douglass speak as an abolition lecturer and was very taken by his persona and by his ideas and welcomed him into my home. He then went on to support me in my cause. Can you give us a time and place when this occurred? We first met in the early 1840s when we were both living in Boston. Where you were living in Boston, I was living in uh, New Bedford and Lynn, but I was in Boston a lot during those That's years. True. Certainly, uh, I guess history records our coming together on that uh, warm, very hot July 19th and 20th in Seneca Falls in 1848, when I was covering the meeting for my newspaper, The North Star, and I second your Declaration of Sentiments. This is the first women's rights meeting ever held in the history of the world, as far as we knew at the time. Mm -hmm. And had you not seconded that, the call for women to take their right to vote, the sacred right to the ballot, I don't think it would have won the day, Frederick. It was in danger of being lost. Among all the resolutions, it was the one that seemed to cause the most stir and the most controversy. And there were those, even women among us, who were saying, that will make us look ridiculous if we call for something so far in advance of the time. Can you describe what the call was uh, yelling for, crying for? Just simply that, the suffrage. The right to vote. The right to Just vote. Just the basic right to vote. The basic right to vote. And it seemed to me so self-evident that it was right, that the time was right to talk about it. If you wait until everyone is ready to hear the utterance of a thought, then what is simply the point of saying it? And it seemed to me so self-evident that women were ready because, oh goodness, I had been working for the last seven years since 41 with women in the anti-slavery movement, and they had demonstrated wit and intelligence and perseverance to a remarkable degree, certainly equal to any man that I worked with. And when it came to raising money, Frederick, I think you would agree, far superior yes. to any man. Indeed, indeed. This was especially true after I moved to Rochester and all of those uh, fundraising events that women uh, coordinated. That was very much so. I'd like to take a moment and say that you're listening to Radio Curious. 
My guests this week are Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass, and we're talking about American society between about 1840 and 1890. During that period of time, there were evils and uh, bad things about our society that affected both of you. What I'm interested in is your perceptions as, what, as to the root causes of those evils. Well, one root cause was economics. And, you know, maybe there's something about the human condition that we uh, exploit each other. And that would be true of all of us. But specifically in the American context, it was a matter of one man, the white man, deciding that he would not pay for the labor. And the labor would be done by black men and black women in this country. So the major exploiter, as I look at it, was a matter of one man wanting to reap the profits off of the work and the labor of another man. The foundation in my mind of the oppression was the church. When we began to work for our rights as women, we discovered what the abolitionists had discovered before us, that the church was the bulwark. When the, you church the church was the foundation. What, what do you mean? The church and its teachings of women's inferiority, of her evil through the sin of Eve, and of her obedience. Now, if you place someone in a subordinate position, tell them they are bad, and that they must further obey those who are in a position of superiority to them, you have the perfect formula for keeping a people oppressed. And that was the church. When we began to work for a right to vote, we were told, women must be subordinate to man. The father and the husband is the master. Just as Christ is the master of the man, so is the father the master of the mother and the children. And that meant that once we asked for the right to vote and began working for it, we were told that to do so was an infidel act, that it was in its basis evil. It would upset God's divine kingdom, his order, which was man superior to woman, for man and woman to stand equally at the polling place would be an act against God. Frederick, um, in your writings, you uh, pretty much express yourself and define yourself as a capitalist. Uh, is that right? I, I, I suppose I would be, yes. Isn't uh, exploitation of people's labors and, and uh, slavery uh, as a prime example, really a fundamental basis of capitalism? Well, certainly during the slave regime it was, it was but uh, capitalism existed in the North. Capitalism, and that was not slavery, capitalism existed uh, in the South. Capitalistic is, is, existed throughout the British Isles when I was but, there. But they in the North, slaves. and in other areas, it existed in the form of child labor. Mm -hmm. um, and very low wages and no benefits to the employees, mm -hmm. well, which is an institution of slavery that is defined uh, in other ways by age and by gender as opposed to by race. Mm -hmm. Well, we could say slavery may have been an extreme, extreme form of it, maybe more akin to feudalism. 
but capitalism in its essence does not have to be exploited in that way. Uh, it certainly was, primarily because the slaves were considered property, and the capitalists hold property to be prime. But once the slaves were not free, capitalists still uh, continued to exist. They didn't hold human as property. They held other things as property, so it was the quality of property that changed. So no, I wouldn't argue that capitalists uh, necessarily have to be exploited any more than I would argue, as I did during 1840s to 18. 48 that the church had to be exploitive. So I agree with Elizabeth to some extent, but eventually I came to disagree with Garrison that the church necessarily had to be exploitive, though it certainly was. And I had many masters, and the worst master of all was a religious master. But then I met others in the church who were not exploitive. So it was the individuals running the institution rather than inherent property of the institution uh, itself. Though I know others would disagree with that. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about William Lloyd Garrison? Oh, William was a wonderful man, a remarkable man, singular individual. When no white man was pleading the cause of slave, William was out there doing it single-handedly, being driven through the streets of Boston, rich, uh, 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 risking life and limb for the cause of black people because he thought that it was a fundamental evil. It was a wrong against the very fabric of human brotherhood and womanhood and society. William Lord Garrison was a man who placed his body where his ideals and his mouth were. No greater man other than perhaps the great John Brown that I ever have a chance to meet than work with than William Lord Garrison. Elizabeth, what is your take on exploitation of people uh, and people's labors being a, a basic part of capitalism? Well, I would disagree, I fear, once again with my dear friend Frederick Douglass. I think that it is a competitive system that precludes any sort of freedom. That under this present competition, there can be no freedom for any group. It is every man for himself and the devil take the hindmost. In the recent conflict in the Spanish-American War, many friends of mine said, you must speak out against the war, Mrs. Stanton. And I said, I will not speak out against this war unless you will speak out against the war that is waged every day against the working classes in this country. These boys who are sent over to fight in a foreign land often find the only time they have a bed to sleep in and food to eat daily is when they are in the army, when they are in the war. The children, the young boys who are forced to dance on top of fabric that has poison in it that seeps through the skin in their bare feet, they are taking their lives day by day. Who are and these people all who are forced to dance? The children mm -hmm. that are in the factories, mm -hmm. that are pushing down the fabric into the dye, and the dye comes up through their skin. Standing in the dye In tanks. their bare feet. And their lives are daily in danger. There must be a cry against this war. It is a war against the laborers of this country that goes on daily, that has not stopped. And there can be no freedom under this system. 
for any group. I'd like to talk with you more, but uh, we're coming to the close of this portion of our program, and I'd like to thank Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass for joining us here on Radio Curious. But before we go, in a word or two or three, I always like to ask my guests at the end of a program to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Elizabeth? Well, I can only speak of and recommend my own woman's Bible. We found it necessary to translate, not just translate, but to interpret the Bible. Uh, many men have been doing this, as you know, in their committees, and so we set up a woman's committee. And our woman's Bible is now available, and we hope everyone will read it and find it instructive. And the title is? The Woman's Bible. By? Elizabeth Cady Stanton, editor. And Frederick, what is a book that you would recommend? wasn't one that I've read recently, actually. It was the first book I ever read, but it's still a tower and strength of me. It's called The Columbian Orator by Caleb Bingham. It's a book that speaks about freedom, not in abstract terms, but in very poetic and very real terms, with scenes from writers throughout the world. Well, Frederick Douglass and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I want to thank you for joining us here on Radio Curious. And I'd like to welcome Charles Pace and Sally Roche Wagner to Radio Curious. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. How is it that you are who you are in your uh, alter egos, if that's the right term? Mm -hmm. Well, I put together my first one-man show back in 1975 when I was in Austin, Texas on Malcolm X. And former professor of mine in whose class I studied acting, Geneva Gay, was in town and I told her that I did one-man shows on Malcolm mm -hmm. and she mentioned that, oh yes, she said, when the Kennedy Center opened, William Marshall did a one-man show on Frederick Douglass. I went, hmm, and I wanted to do someone of the 19th century and I was going to do Nat Turner, but I didn't feel spiritually strong enough to do Nat and Douglass left a paper trail. And that's why I've been fascinated with this man's writing life since 75. What's your background, your areas of study? Undergrad work was in biology, uh, and my uh, graduate work is in American Studies, History and Anthropology in the master's program and in the PhD program. The reverse, Amer uh, American Studies, in my primary discipline is anthropology. So my research area is the anthropology of performance and experience and visual communication. So I'm interested in how cultures worldwide use performance as a way of uh, commenting on ourselves to ourselves, so to speak. Sally, how do you choose your character? Elizabeth Cady Stanton I developed for the Great Plains Chautauqua in 1988. I had been doing performance for a while as her co-worker, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and I started doing performance really as a research tool when I was teaching women's studies, one of the first women's studies programs that I helped found in uh, Sacramento. And uh, I would come in dressed in character as I was writing my doctoral dissertation, uh, partial biography of Matilda Jocelyn Gage, and say, well, what do you want to know about her? And it helped me to separate out the important events in her life mm -hmm. and the important things she did from things that were less important but more research compelling. And um, that's how I started doing Stanton. Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you both a big question in a short amount of time. And that's the question I asked your characters. Um, now, in the 1990s, 
What are the evils of American society as you see them? The backlash. I think very similar to what was going on in 1890, as Charles and I were working on preparing this and then also last night and today doing the performance, uh, at one point he talks about the 60s as the time of vision and the 90s as the time of, um, of backsliding. And uh, many people in the audience, of course, thought he was talking about the 1960s yeah. and 1990s. Yeah. But I think that similarly to what was happening 100 years ago, uh, there was great progress made, and now we're beginning to really uh, backslide, and, and uh, it's a time of, of despair for many people. Charles? Hmm. Evil is such a strong term, but that last word that was used, despair, perhaps that's an evil when you despair. There's a sense of aimlessness and hopelessness that you see, a lack of a creative vision. Uh, maybe that be, can be considered in some manners an evil. But really in terms of real evil, uh, I think that's one of the positive things about American societies. I don't know if, I would, if there are anything that I would consider evil. There are things that I would change and work on. Not to say that there aren't any evils. What I would work on is doing what we do, is to increase the public memory. So I'd work on that, and I am working on that. And I think one of the things that we do to help the despair is to say we've been through worse times. And the, this is the story. These are the stories, and these are the people, and how they worked on it. And we will get through these, or can get the, through these too, as well. I think the phrase, increase the public memory, is uh, worth repeating. Hmm. I think it, 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 it identifies the work that you both do um, as Chautauquans and as uh, educators. Mm -hmm. As we come to the close of our time, I want to ask you in this lifetime, Charles Pace and Sally Roche Wagner, to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately that you would recommend to our listeners. Well, my other incarnation, my most recent incarnation, is W.B. Du Bois. Yeah. And the book that uh, I've read recently, the last about four times on him, is called W.E.B. Du Bois, Autobiography of a Race, 1863 to 1918, Volume 1, by David Levering Lewis. Uh, Bancroft Award-winning book, won a Pulitzer Prize in history uh, last year. And I'm sitting here with egg on my face because the book that I want to talk about that I just finished um, is one that I can't remember the name of. And it was written by the, um, the first African-American to do a full-length feature film in the United States. And it was about his experience homesteading on the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. Do you remember his... His name is Oscar Michel. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the name, but I can't remember the name of the book. Mm. Um, but the book it was the basis for the movie. It's the story of his, and living in South mm -hmm. Dakota, I'm of course really interested in this unique homesteading yeah. experience. Charles Pace and Sally Roche Wagner, thank you very much for joining us here on Radio Curious. Thank you. Thanks. In this archive edition of Radio Curious, we visited with Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Frederick Douglass, as portrayed by Chautauqua scholars Sally Roche Wagner and Charles Pace. The book that Frederick Douglass recommended was The Columbian Orator by Caleb Bingham. 
the book that Charles Pace recommended was W.E.B. Du Bois, Biography of a Race, 1868-1919, by David Levering Lewis. The book that Elizabeth Cady Stanton recommended was The Woman's Bible, edited by Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And the book that Sally Roche Wagner recommended was The Homesteader, a novel by Oscar Michaud. There are over 630 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, radiocurious.org. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. And the phone is 707-462-6541. Christina Onestead is our assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.